1: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly
0: coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Michael Gove puts the brakes on Marks and Spencer's controversial Oxford Street redevelopment. New questions over secured by design, allowing the police to reshape our cities. Fewer new London skyscrapers coming forward, despite record approvals. And Thomas Heatherwick's tree sculpture for the Jubilee. My name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the London. My guest this week is Fran Williams. Fran is Deputy Architecture Editor at the AJ. Welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me again, Merlin.
1: The government's outspoken Community Secretary, Michael Gove, has put the brakes on controversial plans designed by architects Pilbrow and partners to demolish and rebuild Marks & Spencer's flagship Oxford Street store. The move will allow Gove's department to examine the scheme and decide whether it goes ahead or is vetoed, something a range of campaign groups, including the 20th Century Society, Save Britain's Heritage and Environmentalists, are calling for. Gove's surprise intervention, effectively ordering Westminster City Council to pause the project, comes just days after London Mayor Sadiq Khan decided that the controversial scheme could proceed, despite significant embodied carbon concerns linked to its demolition and rebuild strategy. This is a story we've been following on Lundown since Pilbrow and Partners first announced its demolition plans back in March last year. This latest twist in the saga created shockwaves last week when it went out as an AJ breaking news alert. The order, known as an Article 31 holding direction, gives the Department for Leveling Up Housing Communities, that's DLUC, time to consider whether to formally call in the scheme before Westminster finalises planning permission. This follows ardent criticism from heritage campaigners, architects and politicians of the unnecessary and carbon-intensive demolition of the existing Edwardian building. A highly critical report by the architect and net zero expert Simon Sturgis, commissioned by Save Britain's Heritage, revealed an upfront carbon cost of almost 40,000 tonnes of CO2. This is the equivalent of driving a typical car 99 million miles. That's further than the distance to the sun, uh, which Sturgis says is incompatible with both national and GLA emissions policy. The government's design are. Create Street's founder Nicholas Boyce-Smith, has also lent on Gove to veto the 10-storey office and retail scheme, saying the debate goes right to the heart of discussions about sustainability and is not just a storm in a central London teacup. Spokesperson for D-Luck told The Evening Standard that the application will be, quote, assessed against published policy on calling in applications and a decision will be issued in due course. This also came in the same week as Gove announced an audacious bid to replace existing affordable housing contributions paid by developers, uh, these are called Section 106 agreements, with a new levy, which will be set as a proportion of the value of a new housing project. Under this new levy, which was originally proposed in 2020 as part of wider planning reforms laid out in Robert Jenrick's planning white paper, councils will be able to directly access cash with which to build housing themselves, or through their housing companies, rather than negotiating with developers who ultimately hitherto delivered the homes themselves. It's understood that Gove has been discussing the changes with industry leaders, and it is expected the new policy will be included in the Queen's speech, opening Parliament next month. So Fran, what's the significance of the latest move which could see the M&S Oxford Street store saved? Um why is the demolition and rebuild strategy proved to be quite so contentious?
0: As um Fin Harper put on Twitter the other week, labor outflanked by the Tories again this time on climate change and built heritage and I think that pretty much sums it up. The reason that this has hit mainstream media maybe more so than other buildings that have been earmarked for demolition is that I think M&S Oxford Street is a building that everyone is familiar with even outside architecture circles. And as Finn says, it has been contentious because it is being argued from both a sustainability and heritage angle. And one of the key things is that it's not a brutalist building, which many people outside architecture actually hate as an aesthetic. So um, giving a bit of background, the story has been going on for quite a long time with a lot of flip flopping between politicians, as Will Hurst described it in the AJ, in a deep dive into what's been going on with the scheme last week. So the plan for the new 10-storey mixed-use replacement building by Pilbrow and Partners was voted through last November by councillors at Westminster by a margin of 5 to 1. And Wilhurst writes that, while well, since it has been a roller coaster ride with London Mayor Sadiq Khan and Community Secretary Michael Gove, it has so far passed every planning hurdle and nobody in power has yet found reason to rule against it. So the new design includes a smaller M&S store, but with office and gym, and many sustainable features, yet as a replacement building will take many years to pay off its massive upfront carbon load, with opponents warning that the planned demolition of its 90-year-old flagship store and replacement with new structure would create so much carbon dioxide that 2.4 million trees would have to be planted to offset it. Planning Authority Westminster not only declared a climate emergency in 2019, but was specifically warned prior to its vote of the upfront carbon impact of failing to reuse the building already standing on the site. Since Westminster's decision, however, the story has obviously taken quite a number of twists and turns. Um, Sadiq Khan gave it the green light despite a hasty GLA review of its initial decision, and Michael Gove then halted the project for further examination, as we obviously reported in the AJ. So why is this project in the spotlight? So it's been quite a big focus for extensive media attention, not just in the AJ but increasingly in the wider national press because of its rapidly growing awareness of embodied carbon in construction. So while policy is lagging behind the arguments put forward by lots of opponents on climate issues, a lot of people are quite baffled by Khan's decision, as we need large schemes like this turned down on sustainability grounds to set a precedent. Will has actually um, quoted Save Britain's Heritage Director Henrietta Billings as saying, so if Gove rejects the MS plan, like his department did with Foster's tulip tower in the capital partly on the grounds of embodied carbon it would represent a much much bigger move and it would be consistent with the government's world-leading target of cutting emissions by 78 percent by 2035 compared with 1990 levels so it's quite it's quite a big move from him um and just a little side note that AJ actually recently published a really interesting um essay by Barnabas Calder and Florian Urban who en- examine the energy profiles, kind of comparing um, the historic bars of Caracalla and Pilbrow and Partners' new M&S. It's quite a meaty but humorous article, so it's worth checking out.
1: Obviously, um, what's really interesting is if we look back to last year's uh, Conservative Party conference, um, Gove actually spoke out about the problem of embodied carbon in building materials such as steel and concrete, like really singling them out. Um, and one of his first major planning decisions uh, was to reject Foster and Partners' contentious Tulip Tower in London, uh, again, partly on the grounds of embodied carbon. Um Should we read something into this? Does this mean that retrofit, restoring and converting buildings rather than simply demolishing them, is filtering through to those very top levels of policy? Um, And if so, what could this mean for architects and developers? Uh, Could we start to see a a change in approaches to big projects like these?
0: So um, when Gove rejected Foster's plans for the 305-metre-tall kind of viewing platform known as the TULIP in November last year, that did show kind of rumblings that planning officials are starting to give greater weight to the carbon footprint of new buildings. Um, So I really, really do hope that this momentum means that retrofit is filtering up to the very top layers of policy. If we start to see changes in policy reflected by this push, then this can definitely encourage architects, developers and clients alike to make different decisions. At the moment, it's quite a bottom-up approach to the creation of project briefs, but I know a lot of architects are beginning to become a bit more instrumental in trying to persuade their clients against new build. But if policy changes, this, this would make changes from the top downwards and could really change the way they approach their projects. I think it's quite exciting, actually. I've seen some quite game-changing retrofit projects over the last year, mostly small, but some quite big, such as um, Holton School in Rugby, where the architect's Van Hennigan Hayward transformed a listed radio station into a huge secondary school with amazing results. The project they produced although not to everyone's taste, is quite unexpected, but in my opinion, incredibly inspiring as it celebrates the existing and works hard and in a very clever way to make it work to to meet the tight requirements that a school needs. Therefore, I think if more clients and developers are forced to work with what they have, this could form unexpected results and we could see some amazing projects emerging in the future. We do have a long way to go though.
1: So just taking a minute to look at Gove's other reforms. Um, Under our current planning system, councils, they basically secure affordable housing and other contributions from new developments by making agreements with developers through Section 106 legislation um, or the community infrastructure levy. Uh, We talk a lot about the crisis of social housing on the show and how existing measures like these are basically failing to make much difference. Um, What exactly is a Section 106, uh, Fran? And also, what are the problems associated with it And how does this new levy that Michael Gove is proposing differ?
0: So a Section 106 agreement is basically a legal agreement between local authorities and developers. They are linked to planning permissions and can also be known as planning obligations. In simpler terms, for example, a new residential development can place extra pressure on the social, physical and economic infrastructure existing in a certain area. A planning obligation will aim to balance the pressure created by the new development with improvements to the surrounding area ensuring that where possible the development would make a positive contribution to the local area and community. So basically under the existing system councils secure affordable housing and other contributions from new developments by making agreements with developers through section 106 legislation or the community infrastructure levy. The main issues involved with that is that the agreements increase land values and hence housing costs is effectively a land tax and then It has helped drive up land values, making all housing less affordable. So Gove's new levy proposes axing this in favour of a new levy set as a proportion of the value of a new housing project. Councils then can access this cash to build their own housing themselves or through their housing companies.
1: Now, one of the things that's interesting, so Gove, uh, he's now more than half a year into his position as Housing Community Secretary. Um, we know this isn't a department people stay for very long in. Um, you know, there, there have been nine ministers since 2007, for example. What kind of a minister do you think Gove is so far, based on his moves that he's done that we've reported on London as well? Um, is he genuinely revolutionary or just someone who knows how to play the media?
0: He is definitely someone who knows how to play the media, especially as he has based some of his recent decisions on quite big stunts by bake- making big moves to overturn decisions on the demolition or prevention of quite massive schemes, such as the TULIP and m especially when it's partly on grounds of embodied carbon. Where he has been revolutionary is on the leaseholder problem, where he's be- he has departed quite radically from general exposition of the odd frontier and there to help. He's actually said that leaseholders should not pay for the crisis and has demanded that house builders pay £4 towards remediation costs. So he has actually, to at least some extent, taken on house builders. In other issues, though, I think we'll have to wait and see. His shake-up of affordable housing, however, does seem like a genuine move and one that could remedy some of the issues associated with the current 106 agreement legislation. But he has abandoned the planning reform which was brought forward by Jenrick And now we understand that just a few elements will be brought forward in the levelling up bill. So perhaps it could be argued that on that front, Jenrick was probably a bit more revolutionary, although this isn't necessarily a bad thing. The planning process obviously needs updating, but it doesn't necessarily need deregulating as Jenrick was basically proposing. One thing that can definitely be said is that Gove is, is his own man and he has ideas about how to go about things. And we reckon at the AJ that he has his biggest moves are yet to come. We will have to wait and see what the levelling up bill and levelling up itself actually looks like in reality.
1: A police initiative giving officers the power to redesign architecture and public spaces has become a lightning rod for criticism after officers in Kent removed public facilities and greenery from parks in Ashford. Last week, Kent police removed benches and bushes from Stanhope, a substantial 1960s residential estate currently undergoing phased regeneration. To the dismay of locals, officers took five benches away from the historically deprived neighbourhood and uprooted low-lying shrubs from small parks and near the parish library. The incident drew widespread condemnation across social media, with the police accused of ableism and ageism. Open City Chief Executive Phineas Harper said, quote, "...it is time to end police involvement in architecture and urban design." Here, here. Um, The police were acting under a long-standing but little-known programme called Secured by Design, which has a powerful influence on public realm and housing design across the country, despite being outside the democratic sphere of government building regulations. Under the programme, police are increasingly dictating the design of British neighbourhoods. Um, Not just removing benches and bushes, but demanding a wider raft of changes to architecture and public spaces, including blocking the construction of new cycle paths, dictating the height of garden gates, and even deciding the orientation of homes. Numerous examples of secure by design have recently come to the fore, including a sheltered housing complex in Frome, uh, at which officers insisted on a heavy passcode-operated gate, which elderly residents struggled both to open and to remember the passcode. Uh, An associate from London's War Thistleton Architects uh, meanwhile reported that when working on a school project in Elton, officers demanded a 2.2 metre perimeter fence be ripped out and replaced with a 2.4 metre one instead, uh, costing tens of thousands of pounds of the tight school budget for just 20 centimetres of extra fence. Um, Surely not exactly a crucial thing for... The quality of someone's education. Um, The Secured by Design initiative, uh, which was founded during Margaret Thatcher's government more than three decades ago, includes a huge range of controversial recommendations, uh, including advocating for, quote, the use of single seats or stools set several metres apart instead of park benches, uh, and a warning against providing too many footpaths. Meanwhile, The Guardian published research by UCL indicating that cash-strapped local authorities are failing to effectively challenge developers over poorly designed and executed housing schemes. Despite the amendments to the National Planning Policy Framework in July, uh, which now allow councils to refuse developments based on bad design, the recent study suggests that local authorities in the South West, Midlands and North are not taking advantage of the new powers professor matthew carmona who headed up the research said that austerity had left councils depleted of in-house design expertise making them less likely to challenge large developers so fran what's this all about what is secured by design uh, and what have been your experiences of this policy is it time for police to play a less central role in the planning process
0: So Secured by Design is a group of national projects focused on crime prevention through security designs and it was established by the Association of Chief Police Officers in 1989 when Thatcher was Prime Minister. The initiative aims to design out crime for new and refurbished homes, commercial premises and car parks. Essentially, each police force therefore has an architectural liaison officer or crime prevention design advisor and their role is to assess each building project in the area to ensure security procedures are carried out that satisfy the principles of secured by design buildings. So what does this look in terms of architecture? Well, in basic terms, it means large barriers, gates, bollards, things that constitute quite hostile architecture, in my opinion, and it can therefore cause a lot of friction between the design advisor within the police and architects over what it means to design a livable space. It doesn't always mean high fences or preventing benching in certain areas. There are ways of doing it subtly and naturally through thresholds and areas of planting. So, for example, it can be integrated in a project designed to create a fully secure building without it kind of resembling a fortress. Um, I looked at a case study, um, which is Lloyd Park Pavilion, a community facility for Walthamstow by Architecture PLB, which was designed um, quite a long time ago in 2013 with security elements actually integrated into it, as um, the previous pavilion there had been victim of severe vandalism. It's not a particularly beautiful building, but as a case study for showcasing integrated, secured by design elements, it's quite useful. For example, rainwater pipes are recessed into the walls and the roof has a large overhang to prevent climbing. And then the green roof kind of prevents smashing of roof tiles, window bars designed to look like Brie Soleil, and roller shutters are fully concealed within the eaves. But this case study is quite interesting as well, because due to last minute value engineering, a huge security fence was added to enclose the refurbished art studios, despite the architect's intention being to continue a kind of existing rough faced brick wall around that area. So there are ways of doing this without creating a high security aesthetic, which looks horrible and hostile, but often due to cuts and lack of resources, hostile elements such as fat fencing are added, which can definitely be to the detriment of the project. And I think this is why those on Twitter got so riled up when photos of the before and after of the ripped out bushes and benches at Stanhope were posted, especially when the simple removal of benches, trees and bushes is plainly detrimental to people and wildlife. And it just exemplifies further friction between the police and people. Um, And I do think it is quite a UK-specific problem too. I'm not sure you'd see many schools in Europe which will have huge kind of high-security fences surrounding them.
1: I I mean, one of the things is especially with this example the tweets about the the parks and the the shrubs being ripped out i mean you couldn't imagine that happening in st james's park in central london um you know whether or not uh, whether or not antisocial b- behavior happens in swanky parks it, it, i'm sure it does um but it it seemed like almost like one rule for one place another rule for somewhere else um So it seems that using Secure by Design, the the police are able to shape the built environment in quite a significant way. Uh, That's an excuse to basically pick one area and deprive it of its amenity in this instance. Um, Is everyone affected equally by this? Or do initiatives like this have a kind of disproportionate effect on some members of society? Um, Especially when we consider that the police, it's in the hands of the police, they're still under quite a lot of scrutiny for alleged systemic racism and misogyny, for example.
0: Oh, totally. There's a, a massively disproportionate effect. I'm not very familiar with the ins and outs of how it is secured by designers implemented on projects. But I assume that projects that don't necessarily have a designer directly involved or a low budget would be directly impacted detrimentally. Um, and of course, police will be tackling areas that they associate with what they believe to have high levels of antisocial behaviour, which is often Um, the poorest areas of the country they're not going to be tackling kind of beautiful parks in bath for example in a lot of places secured by design seems to just divide places rather than kind of soliciting social interaction or a sense of community and it's tricky because i'm not sure there will be many planners out there that will have the political will to criticize the police part of the problem will be that local planning authorities lack the resources and confidence to stand up to bad suggestions coming from the police And with most anti-crime practice, it's fundamentally flawed because it is reactive and it doesn't think about all the issues from all the perspectives. So if time and money was invested into making a more collaborative process, like all these things, it might not be as detrimental to our communities.
1: And And I think obviously this is sort of focusing on a particular area of design to solve social problems, which probably go way beyond whether or not there's a bench in a park and are probably related to much bigger things. Um, But if we also look at what's going on with the creation of new places, uh, this research by University College London has indicated that councils just don't have the knowledge or resources to effectively implement design change that would actually allow them to best serve their local communities. Um, Many local authorities, especially in the North and Midlands, are reluctant to exercise the power their powers over what are comparatively highly resourced developers um, and that often then results in some quite poor quality housing uh, getting built. Um, this could be the stuff that causes the antisocial behaviour rather than the uh, the secured by design lack of principles. Can we get to a point where councils are able to fully deliver on their commitments to their constituents um, and what needs to happen for us to get to that point? Do councils simply just need more money and an end to austerity?
0: The problem isn't really that Authorities in the North and Midlands are reluctant to reject shoddy design or challenge developers. What the UCL research is suggesting is that they employ less urban designers and have less design expertise in their planning department. The larger picture is austerity. Local councils have seen their spending reduced by roughly a quarter to a third since 2010. And this has meant that most council planning departments have got smaller over the last 10 years. So clearly investing properly in the planning departments would help although I suppose money and political will for change is the answer to a lot of problems. There has also been a, ma- a massive drain of architects and urban design people to London, which has not helped design aspirations in other parts of the country, but perhaps this is beginning to change with London becoming increasingly unaffordable to young people and the government now pledging to properly invest into other towns and cities around the UK. In the nearer future, public practice is exp- expanding beyond London and the Southeast and I'm excited to see the results of this. I think it plays a massively important role in placing designers, architects and urbanists into councils so they can properly advocate for better design standards.
1: This week, the annual New London Architecture NLA tall Buildings Survey has revealed that permissions granted for skyscrapers hit record levels in London last year. A total of 98 full planning permissions were granted in 2021. That's 26% higher than the year before, and the highest since the NLA launched this survey back in 2014. Um, it reflects a backlog of applications uh, that were submitted in 2018 and 2019, just before the pandemic hit. Um, The survey, which looks exclusively at buildings taller than 20 storeys, provides a forecast of the capital's changing skyline. And this year's report hints that it is the outer boroughs which will be changing drastically over the coming years. 56% of permissions granted went to the outer London boroughs, uh, with 88 tall buildings in the pipeline in zones 3 to 4 and 41 in zone 5. The boroughs of Newham and Brent alone bagged a combined total of 34 tall buildings, the survey revealed. Um, However, it's not all growth. Over the past year, the number of new planning applications for tall buildings was actually down 13% uh, following a consecutive three-year decline. Um, This slump in applications uh, pertains to concerns over the dwindling supply of homes in tall buildings, um, threatening the Mayor of London's ambitious goal of introducing 50,000 new homes each year. There are definite signs of a slowdown of tall buildings in London, with the pipeline contracting by 1% year-on-year in 2021. Uh, The report from NLA states a myriad of reasons for this, including uncertainties created by the pandemic, uh, rising build costs, new safety measures, environmental regulations and increased affordable housing obligations, all of which have imposed a greater scrutiny on high-rise buildings. So Fran, uh, what do you make of the landscape of tall buildings uh, in London? Do they play a fundamental role in shaping our culture, work life and home balance for all Londoners for the better? Um, Or is a slowdown in in these developments something we should possibly be celebrating?
0: I think we forget that London's history of tall buildings is still very recent. Until 1963, St Paul's Cathedral was still London's tallest building at 111 metres tall until it was overtaken by Millbank Tower and then the BT Tower in 1964 when height restrictions were lifted. And then in the 80s, the first sort of skyscrapers in London began to be built with the NatWest Tower in the city of London and one Canada Square at the centrepiece of what we know now as the Canary Wharf development. So it's only in the last kind of 30 to 40 years that they've become more iconic of London's landscape, which was always known globally to have a very different urban fabric to other capital cities one that was, that is quite low rise and spread out, particularly compared to Manhattan in New York, for example, which is much, much, much more high rise. However, as of 2020, it was reported that the Greater London Metropolitan Area contains the second most skyscrapers of a city in Europe, um, containing 33 that reach a roof height of 150 metres or taller. So for London, our towers kind of certainly denote landmarks. For example, the towers in Canary Wharf in the City of London, and particularly the Shard in London Bridge, can all be used as kind of wayfinding in a way. But in terms of high-rise living, despite things changing as highlighted in the NLA report, it still has quite negative connotations in the UK. So high-rise apartments were once best known as a form of council housing until the 80s when they fell out of favour. And this is obviously echoed in popular culture, such as um, J.G. Ballard's book High-Rise, which comments on the breakdown of society through the analogy of a tower block. But now, often these high-rise apartments that are being built are more often than not luxury developments. The apartments at the top with the best views being the most luxury of them all, with sections designated affordable being kind of quite minuscule in most developments. So personally, I think a slowdown in these developments should be celebrated. Low-rise, high-density housing schemes are the way forward, in my opinion, for a number of reasons, and they can be done incredibly well As exemplified by Peter Barber, we need more affordable housing, not luxury, flashy towers where flats cost millions of pounds.
1: The Observer published an article uh, this week about one really big tall building uh, which could be seen joining the the medley of London high-rises, written by their critic Rowan Moore. Um, Make architects the Put forward this proposal for a 109 metre tall tower to replace the old ITV building next to the iconic National Theatre and South Bank Arts Centre. Uh, we discussed it on London quite recently. Um, the proposed building will inc- increase the floor area of the existing structure by staggering 230%, um, squeezing out as much profitable volume as the site can offer. Um, Rowan Moore described the building as a brute, uh, but backers claim the project will deliver jobs and office space. Um, Fran, when you look at examples like this, uh, what does it say about the debate around? tall buildings in uh, London Uh, if developers get their way do you see London turning into a more city dominated by skyscrapers Uh, or do you think there there could be a, a, a compromise in the offing
0: yes I do think this project is a good example for showcasing the priorities of developers versus what the people of London need and want and I thought Rowan Moore's piece was really good and really convincing on the topic critiquing exactly what the building is actually um, and questioning what the building is actually giving back to Londoners. So Make's proposal for the 26 storey office block on the former ITV London Studios site on London South Bank was recommended for approval last month as reported by Willing in the AJ, despite receiving more than 260 objections, including two from local councillors and the local MP, but it was supported by planning officers at Lambeth Council. And the planning report at the time actually acknowledge that the scheme is clearly controversial and extremely unpopular, with opponents saying that the proposals are too large and bulky. Critics added that the overbearing building would negatively affect the setting of the grade two listed IBM building and grade one listed National Theatre, which are obviously both designed by Dennis Lasden. Um, and then the planning report also says that the massing approach and overall heights respond well to the site's context. Mm, I have to question, does it? I just think it's a massive building from the images and it's just another example of kind of greenwashing to push a building through um it's also perhaps another example of developers putting in an application for a, a much bigger building than they know they will get eventually get planning for um as it will probably be reduced down in the process and it does show that developers have the monopoly on the debate of tall buildings for them it maximizes capital building on a, on the small footprints that london have. Um, as contextually, it's quite difficult to build in our city due to kind of lack of sites and tight constraints. And of course, if they got their way, the city would be dominated by skyscrapers and huge groups of buildings containing office space that I'm not sure will be used to capacity, particularly in a kind of new working scape that is very different to what we were kind of working in pre-pandemic.
1: There are many people simply calling for a limit to the number of new towers popping up. i um, be interested to know where you stand on that debate. Um, but also, what sort of role this uh, NLA annual tall buildings report plays in facilitating big discussions like these? Um, I, I mean, in some ways, it can look like something that's simply flagging London as a tall buildings-friendly environment.
0: I haven't read the full NLA report, but what I can see is it's not particularly critical of the boost in planning permissions for tall buildings. They claim, as they have noted in previous surveys, that what is coming through the planning system and out of the ground is increasing across the outer London boroughs in zones three, four, and five, as well as for the build to rent sector, mirroring the trend in the wider new build housing market. The report, in some ways, is quite celebratory of this. It's not taking a deep dive critically at what these projects actually are and whether they will be good for London's fabric in terms of social, environmental and economic needs. Um, So I agree with you, Merlin, that the report serves... All it serves is kind of to flag London as a tall building's friendly environment. But in some ways, I do hope it will trigger a debate. I suppose it already has, in a way, as we're discussing it on this podcast... But it really needs to trigger a debate amongst planners and policymakers as to whether this is what London actually needs and whether this is the best way of meeting the demands of our housing crisis, which is much more urgent, in my opinion.
1: Heatherwick Studios has revealed plans to create a 20 meter tall sculpture made from 350 trees to mark the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. This is a story focusing on a very dreamy looking rendering that was reported by AJ. Uh, that's actually the very same publication that covered the ongoing saga around Heatherwick's failed garden bridge proposal. Um, and it was pretty much instantly something that created a flurry of Twitter responses. Imaginatively dubbed the Tree of Trees, the proposed project outside. Buckingham Palace aims to celebrate the one million trees planted as part of the Queen's Green Canopy Initiative since October 2021. Uh, the charity works to help green our cities, renew the countryside and bring communities together, and includes a programme to support urban greening projects in areas of high socioeconomic deprivation and low canopy cover. According to Heatherwick Studio, the design, quote, visually represents a tree, but abstracts it to convey a sense of magic and movement. It features a twisted, stacked, layered trunk with pots sprouting and the saplings spinning away to the four corners of the UK. Uh, Heatherwick's rendering is the first big flourish from London's architecture world in the run-up to the Queen's Diamond Jubilee, which centres on a special four-day weekend at the start of June. Uh, The next uh, could be London's long-awaited crossrail, uh, dubbed the Elizabeth Line, which is rumoured to be on target for a May opening, allowing the public to finally enjoy super-fast cross-town connections and a clutch of stunning new architect-designed central stations. Open City will meanwhile be drawing attention to a special list of more than 100 iconic buildings opened by the Queen in London, including hospitals, sports stadiums and council estates. Um, So Fran, what do you make of this latest design from Heatherwick Studio? Um, Is it a fitting celebration of the Queen's Diamond Jubilee? Or is it perhaps a bit of a distraction uh, from more practical, public-spirited additions to London which reflect the Queen's legacy, like the Elizabeth line, for example?
0: It's very Heatherwick. A statement structure without thinking of the consequences. <laughs> um, Ollie Wainwright, the Guardian critic, joked on Twitter saying that it looks like Heatherwick finally found use for his job lot of trees left over from the failed garden bridge, with Alper Delpani replying, "Don't forget his project, A Thousand Trees, um, which is a shopping center in China that Heatherwick studio has designed to resemble um, a greenery-covered mountain, um, and that was heavily criticized for its carbon costs outweighing the actual environmental benefit. So I think this piece of sculpture, can I call it that? It's just a very um two, early 2000s MVRDV and don't forget last year's failed marble arch mound, which I suspect could similarly happy, happen here. It has the potential to be another example of reality not reflecting impressive CGI's. Um, obviously trees always look lovely and whimsical in renders. They're very easy to make look good in Photoshop, but in reality, tying actual trees to skeleton structure is incredibly difficult and could look terrible. And this would, in some ways, undermine years and years of work that has gone into Crossrail, something that will actually be functional and make a lot of people's day-to-day lives much easier. Crossrail will be opening at the end of May to coincide with the Jubilee weekend. And I've actually had a sneak peek. It looks great. And the amount of thought that has gone into such a complicated feat of engineering and construction is incredible. And I know a lot of people are very excited for it to open. So apparently Heatherwick's latest stretch has been dubbed the Tree of Trees. But putting aesthetics and jokes aside, the whole point of the Queen's Green Canopy Initiative that it, it actually invites people across the UK to plant a tree, including everyone from individuals to villages, cities, counties, schools and corporates, encouraged to play part. And this sculpture essentially kind of defeats that point as it takes away the whole process of actually planting something. Hopefully the trees will survive the commission. I assume it's meant to be temporary, I'm not really sure... Um, and can eventually be reused elsewhere.
1: So back in 2017, Heatherwick Studio, that's the firm that designed that stunning Olympic cauldron for the uh, 2012 Games, uh, they came under scrutiny over the Garden Bridge development, uh, which despite never, never getting off the ground, cost more than 53 million pounds in total. Um, 43 million of that came from public money. Um, it was almost universally slammed for being a kind of ill-thought-out vanity project for a few people who were backing the project. Um, does this new sculptural contribution from Heatherwick? run in a kind of similar detached from reality vein or is this actually you know much more sort of grounded in a, in a grassroots thing uh, and will serve a, a worthwhile addition to london's public art
0: architect chris medlin commented on the on richard Waite's story on hadewix Tree of trees making the point that 21 million although i'm not sure that was the cost of the installation i think he got confused because it's meant to be 21 meters high but he said according to the woodland trust 21 million would buy 200,000 acres of rainforest, which is about 140 million trees. And perhaps that such an area of protected rainforest would have been a great addition to the Queen's legacy rather than an overpriced proposal like this. Although I'm not sure how much this is going to cost. So basically, I think the money could be used to plant more trees in conclusion. And as I said before, this project could definitely run the risk of being another render versus reality disaster like the Marble Arch Mound And overall, a massive disappointment.
1: Um, So while we're on the topic of the Queen's Jubilee, um, Open Cities collated a list detailing 111 buildings opened by Her Majesty across the capital. Um, So one of the the big things that she did in her career was opening lots and lots of buildings. And it turns out a lot of them were really cool buildings. Um, Amongst them are things like the Barbican, uh, the Lloyds building, uh, National Theatre, even Wood Green Shopping Centre. Um, when we talk a lot about the climate crisis on the show um, should we perhaps be using an existing building uh, to celebrate this um, epic uh, years of service and um, if you've had a look at the list you had a sneak preview um, what do you think is your favorite on the list and is there anything surprising in there that was opened by the Queen?
0: We should 100% be using an existing building to celebrate the jubilee. If we want more architects and more clients to be pushing for making retrofitting a priority over new build, if possible, then we should be setting a precedent by celebrating an existing building. What's my favorite place on the list? Oh, obviously the Barbican. Surely it's every architect's favorite. In terms of the most surprising, I'm not sure any of them are that surprising as they're all kind of civic health education projects, except maybe the line enclosure at London Zoo in Camden. Um, what do you think Merlin?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I, get your point about the sort of civicness of them. I think that it, it, it did surprise me how much the Queen seems to be associated with brutalism. That uh, It's always like she's like the patron of so many pu- br- brutal landmarks, including uh, Barbican and like the Queen is with Talk 2 Conference Centre. Um, we're now at the culture section of the show uh, where we get to discuss uh, cool things uh, that are coming up in London's architecture and built environment cultural scene. Um, firstly the RIBA uh, is opening a new exhibition called Radical Rooms uh, Power of the Plan uh, it's being put together by the architect Charles Holland uh, and the visual artist die Mainstone um, it explores power relations embedded within the layout of our domestic spaces um, uses stories from architectural history and highlights moments when the architectural plan has challenged or changed the convention's of domestic life is is this one you're you're going to be checking out Fran? uh
0: potentially i saw some of the images um i think they've kind of they've uh they've designed some costumes that look that are based on spaces and buildings and they do look quite amazing
1: yeah i had a look at um die mainstone because i wasn't familiar with her work before um it does amazing kind of performance artist, and uh seems to create these costumes which are very like early bauhaus uh type outfits like weird abstracted super shapes that fit around your body a bit like a kind of architecture
0: yeah they look amazing
1: the other thing that's uh caught our eye um it's actually courtesy of the ian visits newsletter if you're not on it you should be um magnificent maps of london a new exhibition at the london metropolitan archives um and it's just it's basically just some really really stunning huge and very detailed maps uh, of London, uh, which show um, how how the city changed over the years, uh, which they put on display. Some of them were in a stairwell, some of them in a kind of exhibition space. Um, the other thing is, while we're on the topic of open city stuff, we actually have a big event uh, coming up next week. Uh, it's part of our Stewardship Awards public programs, called "A New Piece of City: How Do We Imagine the Future of London and Who Is It For?" Um, it's taking place at the uh, St Botolph without Bishopgate. Uh, church hall a really cool spot near liverpool street station wednesday the 4th of may in the evening 6 30 um we've got some really cool panelists uh, who are going to be basically discussing how you create a new bit of city so um got julian robinson lse's director of estates somebody who's commissioned some really cool architecture over the years um charlotte levy from community brain a really really cool um community grassroots engagement organization uh we've got amandeep Kala. From uh, Barking Council's B First Development Agent um, Housing Development Company, um, also Ellen Halstead from uh, Peabody, uh, who's Director of Strategy and Program at Thamesmead, um, and it's all going to be chaired by Will Palin, uh, who's the legendary uh, Chief Executive Officer of the Bart Heritage Trust. Um, so another one for your calendars, or if you're in the area, do drop by um, and join us for that cool panel discussion next Wednesday. Uh, the other thing that, that caught us, uh, caught our eye in culture news is the fact that uh, Londoner Sonia Boyce has won the Golden Lion at the uh, Venice Biennale um, for the best national exhibition. Is this? Um, have you? Did you go out to to Venice to see the art show this year?
0: No, I didn't. But um, I know a lot of people who did, and they said it. They said it was amazing. But. Um... As usual, the art biennale was quite... Apparently, it's a lot more chaotic than the architecture one. So um, everyone I met who'd been were utterly exhausted.
1: Yeah, it says, um, just reading in the arts newspaper, it says that Boyce's work, Feeling Her Way, features a chorus of black female voices set against tessellating wallpaper and golden 3D geometric structures. Um. Obviously, you know, typically on the show, we review um, culture stuff happening in London. So obviously not expecting listeners are going to hop over to Venice unless everyone's got loads of time and free money. Um, but the uh, obviously what I think would be really cool, hopefully, is that Sonia Boyce's installation uh, does come to London. Um, you know, take Britain, for example. Uh, and we all get to enjoy that um, once it's finished its run in Venice. So that will probably be next year. But um, really cool thing to look forward to and a great achievement by a London artist. Uh, fantastic
0: and of course um, the um, the British Pavilion from the last Architecture Biennale is at the building centre right now which I haven't yet been to check out but I'm going to ASAP
1: Fran thank you for being on the show being fantastically insightful knowledgeable and just great fun to chat with um, I really hope you can join us again in the future uh, where should listeners go to stay up to speed on all the important writing that you're doing um, and also is there any kind of socials handles people people might want to follow?
0: Um, so the Architects Journal is online at thearchitectsjournal.co.uk and I'm on Twitter at Fran Wills, and that's with a Z
1: Fantastic, thank you once again for being on the show, super cool Thanks for having me You've been listening to The Lundown a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed we recommend subscribing to The Architects Journal which has covered all these issues and many more too You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at open city london or by using the hashtag londown l-n-d-d-w-n open city receives no public funding so if you want to support our work please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an open city friend open city is dedicated to making london a more open accessible and equitable city